invite you to take let me invite you tonight and take your Bibles to turn Second Samuel chapter twenty one with me. Second Samuel twenty one. Just realized I don't have my notes with me. This is gonna be interesting. One second. We'll go with the miniature version here. Second Samuel chapter twenty one. The final four chapters of Second Samuel summarize the main points of the book with a, a climactic epilogue. There are six uh, sections that are given concentrically. That is, the first and last are similar. The second and the um, fifth are similar. And the middle two, the third and fourth, form the climactic center of the epilogue. So when I say fifth and sixth, I mean... This first section that we're going to look at tonight, chapter 21, includes the first and the second section, and um, they're very similar to the fifth and sixth sections that we'll see in chapters 23 and 24. Oh. So let me show you what that looks like here. Um, kind of hard to see here, but this first section is about the Saul's sin of killing the Gibeonites and how that sin was atoned for. So that's at the top of the, the circle, the out, outer circle. And at the bottom of the circle is uh, David's sin and his atonement. His sin in chapter 24 is his sin of taking a census when he should not have and how that sin is atoned for. Uh, so those two sections are similar. And then in the, the second and the fifth sections, we have, um, we have the record of David's weakness and how he had to depend on these mighty men. We're going to see one of those sections tonight. And then the middle two sections have to do with uh, David's song. The, the third section is really David's song, chapter 22. And then the fourth section is David's final prayer or words about God that the the, the climactic center of these, these these last six sections have to do with David's trust in God. And that's what we ought to, to see is going on. The author is trying to help us to see that he's not just collecting a bunch of stories in First and Second Samuel and then let's see how we can tie this in a bow. But rather, he's bringing a climactic conclusion to all that we've seen in First and Second Samuel. And these... Uh, sections help us to, to remember that, that we must trust in God. We are not independent of human beings. Uh, we need the help of others. We must rely on strength. And that's what we'll see tonight. That, that we must trust in God and that God employs the, the help of other people in the work that He's called us to do. So really, these this ending of Second Samuel really helps finish what we saw at the beginning, which was Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and 1 Samuel chapter 2. And her focus was on the exaltation of the humble, the suppression of the wicked or the proud, and God's promise to bring a future king. And we're going to see all those kinds of themes kind of come back together to show that God is working throughout all these various circumstances, the rise and fall of Saul, the rise and fall of David, and, and how God worked in that. When I say fall, I mean his fall from grace, he sins against God, 
and yet God still uses him. So let's take a look at this uh, first section. The first section here is verses 1 through 14. So let me read that text for us, and then we'll move into the second section after we finish that. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now there's a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the presence of the Lord. And the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Thus David said to the Gibeonites, What should I do for you? And how can I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? Then the giving knight said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, I will do for you whatever you say. So they said to the king, The man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the the Lord which was between them, between David and Saul's son Jonathan. So the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aah, Armoni and Mephibosheth, from uh, whom she had borne to Saul, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she had borne to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholothite. Then he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before the Lord, so that the seven of them fell together, and they were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. And Rizpah, the daughter of Aah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until it rained on them from the sky. And she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. When it was told David what Rizpah, the daughter of Aah, the concubine, of Saul had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the open square of Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines struck down Saul in Gilboa. He brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan his son from there, and they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan his son in the country of Benjamin and Zelah in the grave of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded, and after that God was moved by prayer for the land. So, here in this text we see that God is gracious to atone for sins and to give us friends who will strengthen us when we are weak. God is gracious to atone for sins. That's his first story, his deliverance from a famine, verses 1-14. through And then God is gracious to give us friends to strengthen us when we are weak. And that's in the second story, verses 15 through 22, really, and that count more than a story. But we'll take a look at that here in just a second. So first, deliverance from a famine. Deliverance from a famine in verses 1 through 14. 
The famine is stated there. Now, there was a famine, verse 1, in the days of David for three years, year after year. I mean, this is significant. This is not, um, this is not something to just wink at. This is a, a serious thing that, that Israel is experiencing. For three years during the reign of David, they are not getting any rain for their crops. When natural catastrophes or tragic accidents occur, there are some who think that they know why God sends them. You know, God is judging our nation with Katrina, or God is judging our nation with 9-11. But if we're honest, we have to admit that we don't know why those catastrophes happen unless God tells us, right? And that's the case in the Bible as well. Job's friends thought that they knew the answer for why the calamities came on Job, right? And yet God rebuked them because they didn't know why. They didn't know why those catastrophes came. Job didn't know why those catastrophes came until when? Until God spoke. And even then, He didn't uh, even fill them in on all the details. And the fact is that many times in the Bible, trouble comes and is given without commentary. But there are times like we have here where trouble comes, in this case a catastrophe, this famine that comes on the land, and God speaks, and He graciously tells His people the reason for the calamity. And that's what He does here. So I'm just thinking of a couple examples. The oppression, the oppression of the Egyptians over Israel. They found out, the Israelites found out why that was happening. God was trying to show His great power over them. Now, they didn't find that out till the end. But how about the famine during the time of Joseph? You know, Joseph knew why that was happening, so that God could save many people in Israel. Not, not, um, not in a, a spiritual way, but, but rescue, rescue their lives, protect them from dying. And, and then the exile. God had clearly told them why the exile would occur. Right? Just, just have to listen to me. This is happening so that, because I'm testing you. I want to, to draw out those who have faith. And, and so, so there are times when God does speak, when catastrophe comes, when trouble comes. And here is one of those cases. And what's the reason that's given according to verse 1? Why does the famine come on the people of Israel? Well, the Lord speaks after David seeks him. And God says this, It is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So in answer to the question, why is there a famine on the people for three years? The answer is because of Saul. Now, where is Saul at this point? He's long dead. Right? It's been several years, perhaps decades. We don't know exactly when the, the writing of Second Samuel took place. But it was during the time of King David's reign at some point. It could have been early in his reign. It could have been later in his reign. But whatever the case, Saul was dead. And, and yet God is saying... Because of what Saul had done during his lifetime, you, Israel, are now experiencing the consequences of his sin. And what was, what was it that Saul did? Well, the text tells us he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, what's that all about? What's so bad about putting the Gibeonites to death? We'll look at the next verse. Verse 2 gives us a little bit of the background of the story just to jog our memory. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. And here's the parenthetical statement that helps us to remember what happened. Now the Gibeonites were not the sons of Israel, so they weren't one of the twelve tribes. They weren't part of one of the twelve tribes. But they were of the remnant of the Amorites. 
And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. So if you were to look in the margin of your Bible, if you have cross-references there, uh, it would take you to Joshua chapter 9, which is where the original covenant was made with the Gibeonites. And do you remember that story? The Gibeonites pretended to be from far away because Israel was starting to conquer. They were conquering all these huge cities. And really, the first city was unbelievable. Jericho, this impregnable city on a hill with double walls. No one could ever get, get past Jericho, but God's, uh, Israel's God could get past Jericho. And as they saw that, they, they realized, we're toast. Uh, they're going to wipe us all out. Or at the very least, they're going to drive us out of the land of Canaan. So we need to come up with some idea. And, and the idea was, well, Israel has to make a, a covenant, an agreement with people outside the land and be kind to them. And so we'll pretend to be from far away. That's what the Gibeonites did, even though they were only from a couple miles away. And uh, they fooled Joshua into thinking that that they were from far away because they had the stale bread and the worn out clothes and, and so on. And the big the key text in that in that section is that Joshua failed to consult the Lord and he entered into an agreement with the Gibeonites. Well, it wasn't very long before Joshua found out that they had deceived him. And yet Joshua didn't kill them all. He had already made a covenant before the Lord with them that he would not kill them, that they would be uh, protected by Israel. And so Joshua followed through on that covenant. And in and, and and making this covenant, he bound Israel, and I would suggest to you, future Israel, to this same agreement. You cannot kill the Gibeonites. You know, the, the temptation might be, and I think this is probably what was going on with Saul, is that, you know, we'll have more inheritance for ourselves we can kill these people who are really not a part of us. Right? They've infiltrated our, our land. Now we're taking care of them. We're helping provide for them. We would have more for ourselves if they were dead. And apparently that's what Saul was thinking. Now this, um, this uh, mention here in verse two that, or verse 1 that Saul and his bloody house had put the Gibeonites to death, there's no record of this in any other part of the Scripture. So we're just supposed to read between the lines and understand that this did happen. Saul did put to death the Gibeonites. And now, as a result, David and his people are experiencing the consequences of it. Now think of it. Joshua had made a covenant on behalf of Israel some 500 years before the time of King Saul. King Saul comes around and says, what a, an old, archaic, outdated, stupid covenant I'm not going to follow through on that. And I'm going to expand my own throne and I'm going to put these people to death. They deceived us. They should be paying for it. And so he does. And yet God says, no. You as a nation made a covenant with me that you would protect them and you didn't do it. So now, even after the one who, who caused the problem, King Saul, is dead, the people are experiencing this famine that goes on for three years. So now David knows the reason for the famine, and now, in verses 3 through 14, he takes steps, steps to try to cover over the sin of Saul and to appease God's wrath. So we begin with the, 
the, the reason or the problem of the famine. And then in verses 3 through 14, we see the relief from the famine. The relief from the famine. And in verses 3 through 6, we see that David asked them, Well, what can I do? And the Gibeonites say, Well, we don't want your money. Silver and gold will not work. And we can't carry out vengeance ourselves. Do you see that in verse 4? Nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. So we don't have the right to kill those who are responsible for our family's death. So here's what we ask of you in verses 5 and 6. Give us seven of Saul's descendants. Let us put them to death and hang them so that everybody can see. And David thinks about it. Verse 7, David has this competing oath. He realizes that if he's going to follow through and allow the Gibeonites to get these seven descendants of Saul, it cannot be Mephibosheth. Why was that? Well, David had also made an, an oath with Mephibosheth, the, the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul. Right? He made a, a covenant with Mephibosheth in 2 Samuel 9 and said that I will take care of you. You know, I will give you back the land that was your, your grandfather's and, and you will eat in my, my palace. And that's exactly what David does. And so he says, okay, well, I can give you seven, but I'm not going to give you Mephibosheth. So here we have Saul not concerned about the covenant. He breaks the covenant and innocent lives die, the Gibeonites. And you have David who is concerned about a covenant he made with Mephibosheth and he follows through on his covenant so that a guilty person, effectively, Mephibosheth is in the family of Saul, a guilty person, someone who could be liable for Saul's sin, could live. David wants him to live, and David is right in doing so. You see, Mephibosheth was liable for the sin of his grandfather in the sense that, and we'll talk about this here in just a second, and yet David spared him because David was a man who was faithful to his promise. In verse 8, David chooses the seven descendants of Saul. He chooses two sons of Saul. In verse 8, the sons of Rizpah. Rizpah is a concubine of Saul's, and she had two sons by Saul, and those two sons were going to die. One of those names, one of the sons' names was Mephibosheth. Now, don't get this mixed up with the Mephibosheth we were just talking about. That's Jonathan's son. Okay, this is a different son. This would have been Mephibosheth's uncle, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. His uncle is Uncle Mephibosheth. Okay, do you have anything like that in your family? Um, in the second part of verse 8, David chooses the five sons of Merib. So this is Saul's daughter. Saul's daughter, Merib, has five sons. And so David says, these two sons of Rizpah, which are two sons of Saul, and these two sons, of, or these five sons of Merib, Saul's daughter, so, in other words, five of Saul's grandsons will be hanged. And that's what happens in verse 9. Notice Rizpah's expression of mourning in verse 10. And Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until it rained on them from the sky. Remember, they're waiting for rain. Famine hasn't been there. And so she's effectively um, spreading this sackcloth down until it does rain. And she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them, the dead bodies, by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. So, 
Rizpah was unable to protect her sons from death. They were liable for their father's death, but she was able to protect them from scavengers, these scavenger birds who want to eat the flesh of these dead corpses. And so she protects them. And when David hears about it in verses 11 through 14, he he recognizes that he needs to give these men and Saul and Jonathan, whose bones he still has, he needs to give all these men a proper burial. So he buries them with Saul's father, Kish. And that's what we find in verses 11 through 14. But the most significant part of this first section that we're looking at is this last sentence in verse 14. It says, Thus they did all that the king commanded, that is, they took and buried those bones. And after that, God was moved by prayer for the land. The result of David giving this some kind of a sacrifice, sacrifice of Saul's family, and then burying these bones, was that in their prayer they, they had a response from God. God was the one, verse 1, who sent the famine, right? It's because of Saul I'm sending this famine. And God's the one who removes it. He heard from them. It seems that the implication is that he heard and responded and sent rain to them. So there seems to be a connection between Saul's sin and the famine, and then the, the sacrifice of his sons and grandsons, and then the removal of the famine. And the question that we have to ask is, how in the world can this be? I mean, how could there be effectively innocent men who die for the sins of their father and grandfather? There are several options that scholars come up with and argue for. Some scholars argue that these seven men were complicit in the death of the Gibeonites. So that is, they were around when Saul did this. Maybe this was at the end of Saul's reign, and he had his family involved. Remember, Saul was a very um, angry person, and he had some huge rage problems, and very likely he came to a boiling, boiling point one day, and he employed those who were closest to him to carry this act out. So it could have been that Saul... Now, the text doesn't say that. That's the problem with this, um, this position. The text doesn't tell us. The second option is that Other scholars argue that David failed to consult God and carried out these deaths on his own. That David is actually acting in sin here by agreeing to what the Gibeonites... Who are the Gibeonites to ask for seven of Saul's men? Tell them no. I mean, maybe David is sinning here in, in allowing these deaths to happen. But I'd like to argue that there are... And here's the third option. That there are several clues in the text that indicate that the executions by David were approved by God. Clue number one. The first clue is that the famine, the, 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 the beginning of the famine and the continuation of the famine was because of God's wrath on the people. We see that in verse one. right? David sought the presence of the Lord and the Lord said, it is for Saul. Because he put the Gibeonites to death. So it seems to follow that if God's wrath was connected to the bringing of the famine, that God's pleasure in verse 14, that he was moved by their prayer, was also connected to the removal or the appeasement of his wrath. 
Clue number two. David's question. Notice what his question is in verse 3. David says, what should I do for you? And notice this, this question here. And how can I make atonement? How can I cover over the sin of what Saul has done to you? So he's talking to the Gibeonites. They say, we don't want silver. We don't want gold. We can't kill anybody. David says, what can I do to atone for the sin? They, Saul has clearly broken the covenant of God. So how can I atone for it? That's the second clue. The third clue is, and this one's a little bit, um, this is a little bit um, weak, I would say. Okay, so I'll just throw that out there and, and um, show it to you, and you can make your judgment on what you think. Verse six: Let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord. And then later on, um, it says that they were hung before the Lord. I think that's um, yeah in verse nine. So the Saul's sons were hung before the Lord. This is not something, apparently, that the Gibeonites were trying to hide. Like, okay, I know God not, might, not be a, might not be happy with us doing this, but can you just give us seven of Saul's descendants? We'll kill them, and we'll make sure they're, they're made into a big scene for everybody to see, and then people will be scared away from killing us again. No, it's like we're going to open it up. God can see this. This is at the mountain of the Lord. And so, effectively, maybe in a sense, they're actually inviting God to stop them. Not in a, like, I dare you to do something, but but God, we think this is what you desire in order to appease your wrath. The fourth clue is the location of the hanging at the end of verse 6. It's in, notice, in Gibeah. Of Saul. Now, what, what is Gibeah? Well, Gibeah was Saul's hometown. Gibeah was the capital. And we think of the capital of Israel being Jerusalem, but that wasn't until David's time and Solomon's time. But, but before that, it was Gibeah because Saul was so... Um, he was a pretty shy guy at first. And so he didn't really want to be king. Like, well, I'm king, okay. And like, well, maybe we'll just do this at my house. He kind of goes back home after he's already acknowledged as king before all the people, and he goes back home and just kind of goes on with business as usual. He's got a couple friends helping him there. It's kind of a weird situation, but his whole kingdom is set up there in Gibeah. And it, catch, it basically catches on over time. And so what's, what, what the Gibeonites are saying is, listen, as we hang these men in your king's hometown, we're saying that God's covenant will not be discredited. You're not going to just ignore the covenant that you made with God to protect us. Here's what happens to people who defy God's covenant. And you see them hung, on, impaled on poles. The fifth clue is the episode of Rizpah in verse 10. Let's read this again because it's a peculiar thing to include in the text. And Rizpah, the daughter of Ea, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until it rained on them from the sky. And she allowed neither the birds of the sky to rest on them by day or the beasts of the field by night. So you have Rizpah doing this kind of grotesque activity. She's taking care of dead bodies as they're rotting. 
protecting them from being eaten by wild animals and scavenger birds. Now why include a section like that? Why not just say, you know, Rispa mourned over the death of her sons. We could all appreciate that. Why talk about this grotesque imagery that you just get in your mind and think, this is disgusting? Could it be that the author put this in to show us the ugliness of atonement? Have you ever considered that the gospel writers give more time to the final day of Jesus' life, his death, effectively. They give more time in their writing to his final day than any other day of his life. Only two gospel writers record his birth. All four of them record his death. And some of them take up a third of their gospel just to talk about the last day. Why? So that we, as readers, can be brought into the circumstances and hear the sounds of crucify Him. See the darkness when His Father turns His back on Him. Smell the stenches of the death that was all around. Look at the people who are gasping and covering over their children's eyes as they walk by Golgotha. Why give so much time to it? And I think it is because we are meant to feel the horror of death. That's why the Gospel writers slow down. We are meant to picture the vultures hovering over the crosses waiting for these bodies to die. We are meant to imagine the sights and the smells of death so that we remember how horrible death is. And that horror is meant to point us, to remind us of the wrath of God against sin. And I would argue that that's what's going on here. That the author throws in this little story of Rizpah to help bring us into the situation and see the horrors of death for ourselves. Get that sense and realize that this is not the way that it ought to be in the sense that those people should be living if it were not for the sin of Saul. So that's where I think I think God is actually approving of these seven men's death, their lives being taken from them. Now, what, what about this verse in Deuteronomy 24? Which you probably already have in your mind. Children should not be put to death for the sins of their fathers. Children should not be put to death for the sins of their fathers. So, my father committed some sins during his lifetime. I should not have to experience the consequences for those. I should not have to be put to death for the sins of my father. Right? But, go back to verse 1, because I want to show you something that I skipped over, and this really could be clue number 6, if you want. Look at verse 1. Why did God send the famine? And the Lord said, It is for Saul all by himself. Is that what the text says? And his bloody house. 
Saul led a house full of warriors who loved to shed blood. And God's saying, do you know why I put... You, you know why I sent the famine? Because Saul and his bloody house put the Gibeonites to death. So, while it could very well be that these seven men had nothing to do with it, I think it's more likely that they actually did have something to do with it. And that would serve, I think, as the best evidence for why they are being put to death. But, even if these seven descendants of Saul were not directly involved, I think there are two other principles that we must consider. First, the principle of land pollution. Turn to Numbers chapter 35 with me. Numbers chapter 35. The principle of land pollution. Now this is not one that I uh, dream about at night or even meditate on during the day. This is one I just came across, in fact, in my studies, and I wouldn't have if uh, one of the commentaries didn't point me to it, but I think it fits. Numbers chapter 35, verse 33. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land. So keep that in mind. What is it that pollutes the land? It is blood. And no expiation, that is atonement, covering over, excuse me, can be made for the land, for the blood that it's shed on, except by the blood of him who shed it. So when Saul killed the Gibeonites, he actually polluted the land of Israel, because that's where it happened. He, he polluted the land of Israel with their blood, and so the only way that that land, the land of Israel, could be atoned for was with the blood of Saul. But Saul was dead. So it Atonement had to come through the death of his sons and grandsons. The second principle is the principle, you can turn back to 2 Samuel 21, the principle of covenant curse. Now, here's one that that takes a little bit of thought, but I I think we can get it here. Um, Remember that Israel made an oath with Gibeon before God, effectively saying, when Joshua made that oath, he's effectively saying, I, on behalf of Israel, enter into an agreement with you, the Gibeonites. And here's my agreement. If we do not follow through on protecting you, then let God judge us. Because we're making this oath before God. We will not destroy you. We will not kill you. Even if it's in our best financial interest, we're not going to do that. So here's Joshua on behalf of the whole nation. And for 500 years, that covenant was was um, was agreed to. It was followed through on. All of Israel kept Gibeon from being destroyed. They continued to protect them. But with the breaking of the oath, Israel as a whole invited God's wrath. Remember what they were saying in the covenant? They're saying, Joshua was saying on behalf of the people, God, do us, do with us whatever you please if we break this covenant. And now they've broken the covenant. Saul, on their behalf. Remember, Saul is not just an ordinary citizen who's just kind of um, an anarchical type of guy who's just going to go out and start killing people. Man, these people really bother me. No, who is he? He's the king. He's a representative. He is, he is committing a definitely an individual sin, but he's also committing a national sin, isn't he? He's sinning on behalf of the nation because the nation made the covenant. The nation had to agree to the covenant. And so as a national leader, he's breaking a national or he's bringing a national curse 
which requires national judgment and I would argue national atonement. And the atonement has to come through some of Saul's family dying. So we've seen Saul's sins and how it was atoned for. The second thing we need to look at is in verses 15 through 22. And I love texts of Scripture like this because the Scriptures are never boring. There's always great information here that, that you just can't find anywhere else. These four verses, or I'm sorry, these eight verses record four fights against Philistine giants. So first we have deliverance from a famine. Second, we have deliverance from enemy giants. And here, four giants are ready to kill and attack Israel. And there's four warriors in Israel who help protect and actually kill these four giants. The first one is found in verses 15 through 17. Apparently David was fighting in a battle and he was getting tired from fighting. And there was this Philistine there who sees him and is ready to kill him. But Abishai stepped in. Look at verse 15. Now when the Philistines were at war again, with Israel, David went down and his servants with them. And as they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. Then Ishbi Benob, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight, was girded with a new sword and he intended to kill David. So he sees David all tired over there. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Then the men of David swore to him, saying, You shall not go out again with us to battle so that you do not extinguish the lamp of Israel. David, you're just too important for us. The, the Israelites say in other texts, you, you know, it would be better for 10,000 of us to die than for you to die, David. You're too important. So you need to stay back at the palace and uh, we'll take care of these battles. And that's what David would do for most of the fights from then on. Verse 18, we have the second deliverance, second fight against a Philistine giant. Now it came about after this that there was a war against the Philistines at Gob and then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph who was among the descendants of the giant. And then a third in verse 19. There was Elhanan, the son of J.R. Oregim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Now, Goliath the Gittite, the, the word Gittite actually means from Gath. So, Goliath of Gath, it sounds like that's not who killed Goliath of Gath. Right? We know from 1 Samuel chapter 17 that David killed Goliath of Gath. So why does it say Elhanan here? Well, if you go to the margin of your Bible again and look at a cross-reference that goes along with verse 19, you'll see that uh, it's connected to 1 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 5, and a, a similar passage that's reporting the, the defeat of a Philistine giant by an Israelite. And in this case, it says Elhanan killed the brother of Goliath of Gath, whose name was, uh, what was his name? Lami. So you can look that up, uh, 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5. But... Probably the most interesting one here uh, is the fourth one here in verse, verses 20 and 21. There was war again at Gath, and there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also had been born to the giant. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. So this is not Jonathan, the son of Saul. This is David's nephew, Jonathan. And he steps up and kills, as one commentator calls him, Mr. Six Digits. And uh, that was the end of him. In verse 22, we have a summary of these deaths. And again, I think the point of this, we're going to come to this in our conclusion, but the point of this section is to show that David cannot live on his own. God is gracious to send along people who will help him in his time of weakness because 
Um, you know, as much as we like in our country to be independent and have this individualistic mindset, we need each other. We need God's people to come along and help us. In this case, David needed these men to help protect him from, from certain death. So let's look at those two principles as we close. First, the one that goes with verses 1 through 14, and that is that we live in a world that is cursed by sin. We live in a world that is cursed by sin. Sometimes God brings physical calamity like famine on us in order to show us the ugliness of our moral sin. You see, we don't often consider and think deeply about our moral sin. And so God sometimes brings along physical pain to help us to see how ugly our sin really is. And the horror of sacrificial death reminds us of the horror of sin against God. And so if you look at verses 1-14 through and you just walk away feeling the horrors of death, and you just sense that this is so ugly, that because of Saul's sin, this mother, this concubine of Saul, had to grieve over her sons and their dead bodies. If you're feeling that horror right now, then good. Because that is the proper application of this passage. You see, atonement is ugly. Atonement is uh, gruesome and gory. And and atonement was not only ugly here. It's that way throughout the Old Testament, isn't it? Every time a Jew sinned against God, he had to have his sins atoned for. And what did he bring? Did he bring someone or something that was not uh, that was also guilty like he was? You know what? I'm going to bring someone else. He's guilty. He'll pay for my sin. No, he brought an animal. And what was that animal guilty? Of course not. Animals don't have souls. Animal is innocent. Who should have died because of the offender's sin? The offender should have. Right, the, the, the Israelite should have died, not the animal. But instead, the innocent animal was killed and his blood was poured out on the ground. And some of it was sprinkled on the altar so that the offender could continue to live. And so there are horrors of death throughout the, the Old Testament that should just make us feel that, that, that sinking gut feeling that this should not be the way that it is. But if that is not horrific enough, then consider the most tragic horror in all of Scripture, which was when the Son of God, who knew no sin, died as if He were the worst of sinners. And why did He do that? He did it in order that we would live. You see, something has to die in order for us to live. That's the way it was in the Old Testament. That's the way it is every time we eat a meal, effectively, we're not vegan. But even then, we have to kill plants to do that. Something has to die in order for us to to, to sustain life. And spiritually speaking, if we're going to live, we need an atoning sacrifice. As ugly as it sounds... As much as we, we, we try to shun that idea, we don't want to think about the horrors of, of death. And Jesus was the payment. You know, we might, like just to, we might like to look at the mold of our sin in our lives and try to just paint over it. 
like we would do with mold in our house. But if we do not remove the drywalls and the studs where necessary, what's going to happen to that mold? It will spread and destroy. In the same way, we might like to have a happy, pretty, easy, you know, gift box wrapped with a bow type of idea to cover over our sin. But there is no easy, pretty way to cover over our sin, is there? The messy atonement reminds us of how horrific our sin really is. And for us, our our atonement doesn't come through an animal sacrifice or through a present-day human sacrifice like what's happening here. Our atonement comes through once-for-all atonement of a past sacrifice, Jesus Christ. The second principle is that we need each other. And when I say we, I'm talking about believers. We need each other, and particularly believers in this church. You know, David was a man who trusted God. David was a man after God's own heart. He was a man who loved God. But as much as David loved God and trusted God, he was not exempt from relying on the strength of others because God would graciously send them to help protect him and give him strength when he was weak. See, David was a great king, but he was also a man of great weakness. He could not do it on his own. He needed to depend on the help of others that God would send along. And we too must recognize that even in the work of God, you know, I'm trusting God. I'm going to read my Bible and trust God and and I'm just going to kind of have my tunnel vision just approach to life. Whatever these people do around me, fine. I don't care. But I'm going to keep trusting God. And there is a sense in which we need to, you know, no matter what happens around us, we need to keep trusting God. So I don't want to to, um, make a false dichotomy here. But, Sometimes we can get this false spiritual idea as if we can do it all on our own. And we can't. We're not independent of the help of others, which is another reason why I'm so thankful for this church. Because I need you just as much as you need me and you need each other. We need each other. God is gracious to atone for sins, to show us the ugliness of our sin through an atoning sacrifice. And he's also gracious to give us friends to strengthen us when they're weak. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the the truth of your word and how, especially in the Old Testament, we find illustrations of uh, truths that we find in the New Testament. And we're, we're thankful, Lord, that you have our best interests in mind. You don't want us just to go through life taking pleasure in the things that do not ultimately satisfy, but you want us to turn from that which enslaves, that which destroys. And you've done that. You've provided a way for us to get out from underneath the tyranny of our sin by providing for us an atoning sacrifice in Jesus Christ, a once-for-all atonement. And so we put our confidence in our Savior. We trust in Him and in Him alone. We don't need any other argument or any other plea. It's enough that Jesus died. And Lord, we also are thankful that you are gracious to provide people in our lives to help us when we're weak, help provide strength for us, to encourage us when we're discouraged. 
to warn us when we're unruly, to be patient with us. And Lord, you've done that with this church. And uh, I praise you for that. pray that you'd help us each to recognize the great gift that it is to have other believers who care about our souls and help us to um, work hard to guard our own hearts and then look to help others when they are caught in a trespass, a spirit of humility, gentleness, love. Lord, thank you for this time together around your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Continue to speak to us even when we go away from here. Remind us of what a great God you are and what responsibility we have to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.